Section 00 of The South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beecher Graham. The South Pole by Ruald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 00. Dedication. The First Account. Introduction. By Fridjof Nansen. Dedication. To my comrades, the brave little band that promised in Funchal Roads to stand by me in the struggle for the South Pole, I dedicate this book. Roald Amundsen, Uranienburg, August 15, 1912. The first account. On February 10, 1911, we started for the South to establish depots and continued our journey until April 11. We formed three depots and stored in them three tons of provisions, including 2,200 weight of seal meat. As there were no landmarks, we had to indicate the position of our depots by flags, which were posted at a distance of about four miles to the east and west. The first barrier afforded the best going and was specially adapted for dog sledging. Thus, on February 15th, we did 62 miles with sledges. Each sledge weighed 660 pounds and we had six dogs for each. The upper barrier, barrier surface, was smooth and even. There were a few crevasses here and there, but we only found them dangerous at one or two points. The barrier went in long, regular undulations. The weather was very favorable with calms or light winds. The lowest temperature at the station was minus 49 degrees Fahrenheit, which was taken on March 4th. When we returned to winter quarters on February 5th from our first trip, we found that the Fram had already left us. With joy and pride, we heard from those who had stayed behind that our gallant captain had succeeded in sailing her farther south than any former ship. So the good old Fram has shown the flag of Norway both farthest north and farthest south. The most southerly latitude reached by the Fram was 78 degrees 41 minutes. Before the winter set in, we had 60 tons of seal meat in our winter quarters. This was enough for ourselves and our 110 dogs. We had built eight kennels and a number of connecting tents and snow huts. When we had provided for the dogs, we thought of ourselves. Our little hut was almost entirely covered with snow. Not till the middle of April did we decide to adopt artificial light in the hut. This we did with the help of a Lux lamp of 200 candle power, which gave an excellent light and kept the indoor temperature at about 68 degrees Fahrenheit throughout the winter. The ventilation was very satisfactory and we got sufficient fresh air. The hut was directly connected with a house in which we had our workshop, larder, storeroom, and cellar, besides a single bathroom and observatory. Thus we had everything within doors and easily got at, in case the weather should be so cold and stormy that we could not venture out. 
The sun left us on April 22, and we did not see it again for four months. We spent the winter in altering our whole equipment, which our depot journeys had shown to be too heavy and clumsy for the smooth barrier surface. At the same time, we carried out all the scientific work for which there was opportunity. We made a number of surprising meteorological observations. There was very little snow, in spite of there being open water in the neighborhood. We had expected to observe higher temperatures in the course of the winter, but the thermometer remained very low. During five months, temperatures were observed varying between minus 58 degrees and minus 74 degrees Fahrenheit. We had the lowest, minus 74 degrees Fahrenheit, on August 13th. The weather was calm. On August 1, we had minus 72 degrees Fahrenheit, with a wind of 13 miles an hour. The mean temperature for the year was minus 15 degrees Fahrenheit. We expected blizzard after blizzard, but had only two moderate storms. We made many excellent observations of the aurora australis in all parts of the heavens. Our bill of health was the best possible throughout the whole winter. When the sun returned on August 24, it shone upon men who were healthy in mind and body and ready to begin the task that lay before them. We had brought the sledges the day before to the starting point of the southern journey. At the beginning of September, the temperature rose and it was decided to commence the journey. On September 8, a party of eight men set out with seven sledges and 90 dogs provisioned for 90 days. The surface was excellent and the temperature not so bad as it might have been. But on the following day, we saw that we had started too early. The temperature then fell and remained for some days between minus 58 degrees and minus 75 degrees Fahrenheit. Personally, we did not suffer at all, as we had good fur clothing, but with the dogs it was another matter. They grew lanker and lanker every day, and we soon saw that they would not be able to stand it in the long run. At our depot in latitude 80 degrees, we agreed to turn back and await the arrival of spring. After having stored our provisions, we returned to the hut. Accepting the loss of a few dogs and one or two frostbitten heels, all was well. It was not till the middle of October that the spring began in earnest. Seals and birds were sighted. The temperature remained steady between minus 5 degrees and minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Meanwhile, we had abandoned the original plan by which all were to go to the south. Five men were to do this, while three others made a trip to the east to visit King Edward VII land. This trip did not form part of our program, but as the English did not reach this land last summer, as had been their intention, we agreed that it would be best to undertake this journey in addition. On October 20, the Southern Party left. It consisted of five men with four sledges and 52 dogs and had provisions for four months. Everything was in excellent order, and we had made up our minds to take it easy during the first part of the journey, so that we and the dogs might not be too fatigued. And we therefore decided to make a little halt on the 22nd at the depot that lay in latitude 80 degrees. However, we missed the mark owing to thick fog, but after two or three miles march, we found the place again. 
When we had rested here and given the dogs as much seal meat as they were able to eat, we started again on the 26th. The temperature remained steady between minus 5 degrees and minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. At first we had made up our minds not to drive more than 12 to 18 miles a day, but this proved to be too little thanks to our strong and willing animals. At latitude 80 degrees we began to erect snow beacons about the height of a man to show us the way home. On the 31st we reached the depot at latitude 81 degrees. We halted for a day and fed the dogs on pemmican. On November 5 we reached the depot in 82 degrees where for the last time the dogs got as much to eat as they could manage. On the 8th we started southward again and now made a daily march of about 30 miles. In order to relieve the heavily laden sledges we formed a depot at every parallel we reached. The journey from latitude 82 degrees to 83 degrees was a pure pleasure trip on account of the surface and the temperature which were as favorable as one could wish. Everything went swimmingly until the ninth when we sighted South Victoria Land and the continuation of the mountain chain which Shackleton gives on his map running southeast from Beardmore Glacier. On the same day we reached latitude 83 degrees and established here depot number four. On the 11th we made the interesting discovery that the Ross Barrier ended in an elevation on the southeast formed between a chain of mountains running south eastward from South Victoria Land and another chain on the opposite side which runs southwestward in continuation of King Edward VII Land. On the 13th we reached latitude 84 degrees where we established a depot. On the 16th we got to 85 degrees where again we formed a depot. From our winter quarters at Framheim we had marched due south the whole time. On November 17, in latitude 85 degrees, we came to a spot where the land barrier intersected our route, though for the time being this did not cause us any difficulty. The barrier here rises in the form of a wave to a height of about 300 feet, and its limit is shown by a few large fissures. Here we established our main depot. We took supplies for 60 days on the sledges and left behind enough provisions for 30 days. The land under which we now lay, and which we were to attack, looked perfectly impossible, with peaks along the barrier which rose to heights of from 2,000 to 10,000 feet. Farther south we saw more peaks of 15,000 feet or higher. Next day we began to climb. The first part of the work was easy, as the ground rose gradually with smooth snow slopes below the mountainside. Our dogs, working well, it did not take us long to get over these slopes. At the next point we met with some small very steep glaciers and here we had to harness 20 dogs to each sledge and take the four sledges in two journeys. Some places were so steep that it was difficult to use our ski. Several times we were compelled by deep crevasses to turn back. On the first day we climbed 2,000 feet the next day we crossed small glaciers and camped at a height of 4,635 feet. On the third day we were obliged to descend the great Axel Heiberg Glacier which separates the mountains of the coast from those farther south. 
On the following day, the longest part of our climbing began. Many detours had to be made to avoid broad fissures and open crevasses. Most of them were filled up, as in all probability the glacier had long ago ceased to move. But we had to be very careful, nevertheless, as we could never know the depth of snow that covered them. Our camp that night was in very picturesque surroundings at a height of about 5,000 feet. The glacier was here imprisoned between two mountains of 15,000 feet, which we named after Fidget Nansen and Don Pedro Christofferson. At the bottom of the glacier, we saw Ole Engelstadt's great snow cone rising in the air to 19,000 feet. The glacier was much broken up in this narrow defile. Enormous crevasses seemed as if they would stop our going farther, but fortunately, it was not so bad as it looked. Our dogs, which during the last few days had covered a distance of nearly 440 miles, put in a very good piece of work that day, as they did 22 miles on ground, rising to 5,770 feet. It was an almost incredible record. It only took us four days from the barrier to reach the immense inland plateau. We camped at a height of 7,600 feet. Here, we had to kill 24 of our brave dogs, keeping 18, six for each of our three sledges. We halted here for four days on account of bad weather. On November 25, we were tired of waiting and started again. On the 26th, we were overtaken by a raging blizzard. In the thick, driving snow, we could see absolutely nothing, but we felt that, contrary to what we had expected, namely a further ascent, we were going rapidly downhill. The hypsometer that day showed a descent of 600 feet. We continued our march next day in a strong wind and thick, driving snow. Our faces were badly frozen. There was no danger, but we simply could see nothing. Next day, according to our reckoning, we reached latitude 86 degrees. The hypsometer showed a fall of 800 feet. The following day passed in the same way. The weather cleared up about noon, and there appeared to our astonished eyes a mighty mountain range to the east of us and not far away. But the vision only lasted a moment and then disappeared again in the driving snow. On the 29th, the weather became calmer and the sun shone, a pleasant surprise. Our course lay over a great glacier, which ran in a southerly direction. On its eastern side was a chain of mountains running to the southeast. We had no view of its western part, as this was lost in a thick fog. At the foot of the Devil's Glacier, we established a depot in latitude 86 degrees, 21 minutes, calculated for six days. The hypsometer showed 8,000 feet above sea level. On November 30, we began to ascend the glacier. The lower part was much broken up and dangerous, and the thin bridges of snow over the crevasses often broke under us. From our camp that evening, we had a splendid view of the mountains to the east. Mount Helmer Hansen was the most remarkable of them all. It was 12,000 feet high and covered by a glacier so rugged that in all probability, it would have been impossible to find foothold on it. Here were also Mounts Oscar Wisting, Sphere Hassel, and Olav Bjaland, grandly lighted up by the rays of the sun. 
In the distance, and only visible from time to time through the driving mists, we saw Mount Thorvald Nilsson with peaks rising to 15,000 feet. We could only see those parts of them that lay nearest to us. It took us three days to get over the Devil's Glacier as the weather was unusually misty. On December 1, we left the glacier in high spirits. It was cut up by innumerable crevasses and holes. We were now at a height of 9,370 feet. In the midst and driving snow, it looked as if we had a frozen lake before us, but it proved to be a sloping plateau of ice, full of small blocks of ice. Our walk across this frozen lake was not pleasant. The ground under our feet was evidently hollow, and it sounded as if we were walking on empty barrels. First a man fell through, then a couple of dogs, but they got up again all right. We could not, of course, use our ski on this smooth, polished ice, but we got on fairly well with the sledges. We called this place the Devil's Ballroom. This part of our march was the most unpleasant of the whole trip. On December 2, we reached our greatest elevation. According to the hypsometer and our aneroid barometer, we were at a height of 11,075 feet. This was in latitude 87 degrees, 51 minutes. On December 8, the bad weather came to an end. The sun shone on us once more, and we were able to take our observations again. It proved that the observations and our reckoning of the distance covered gave exactly the same result, namely 88 degrees, 16 minutes south latitude. Before us lay an absolutely flat plateau, only broken by small crevices. In the afternoon, we passed 88 degrees, 23 minutes, Shackleton's farthest south. We pitched our camp in 88 degrees, 25 minutes, and established our last depot, number 10. From 88 degrees, 25 minutes, the plateau began to descend evenly and very slowly. We reached 88 degrees, 29 minutes on December 9. On December 10, 88 degrees, 56 minutes. December 11, 89 degrees, 15 minutes. December 12, 89 degrees, 30 minutes. December 13, 89 degrees, 45 minutes. Up to this moment, the observations and our reckoning had shown a surprising agreement. We reckoned that we should be at the pole on December 14. On the afternoon of that day, we had brilliant weather, a light wind from the southeast with a temperature of minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit. The sledges were going very well. The day passed without any occurrence worth mentioning, and at three o'clock in the afternoon we halted, as according to our reckoning we had reached our goal. We all assembled about the Norwegian flag, a handsome silken flag, which we took and planted all together, and gave the immense plateau on which the pole is situated the name of King Hakon VII's Plateau. It was a vast plain of the same character in every direction, mile after mile. During the afternoon, we traversed the neighborhood of the camp, and on the following day, as the weather was fine, we were occupied from six in the morning till seven in the evening in taking observations, which gave us 89 degrees, 55 minutes as the result. 
In order to take observations as near the pole as possible, we went on as near true south as we could for the remaining nine kilometers. On December 16, we pitched our camp in brilliant sunshine with the best conditions for taking observations. Four of us took observations every hour of the day, 24 in all. The results of these will be submitted to the examination of experts. We have thus taken observations as near to the pole as was humanly possible with the instruments at our disposal. We had a sextant and artificial horizon calculated for a radius of 8 kilometers. On December 17, we were ready to go. We raised on the spot a little circular tent and planted above it the Norwegian flag and the Fram's pennant. The Norwegian camp at the South Pole was given the name of Paulheim. The distance from our winter quarters to the pole was about 870 English miles, so that we had covered, on an average, 15 and a half miles a day. We began the return journey on December 17. The weather was unusually favorable, and this made our return considerably easier than the march to the pole. We arrived at Framheim, our winter quarters, in January 1912, with two sledges and 11 dogs all well. On the homeward journey, we covered an average of 22 and a half miles a day. The lowest temperature we observed on this trip was minus 24 degrees Fahrenheit and the highest plus 23 degrees Fahrenheit. The principal result, besides the attainment of the pole, is the determination of the extent and character of the Ross Barrier. Next to this, the discovery of a connection between South Victoria land and probably King Edward VII land through their continuation in huge mountain ranges, which run to the southeast and were seen as far south as latitude 88 degrees 8 minutes, but which in all probability are continued right across the Antarctic continent. We gave the name of Queen Maud's Mountains to the whole range of these newly discovered mountains, about 530 miles in length. The expedition to King Edward VII land under Lieutenant Prestrud has achieved excellent results. Scott's discovery was confirmed, and the examination of the Bay of Wales and the ice barrier, which the party carried out, is of great interest. Good geological collections have been obtained from King Edward VII land and South Victoria land. The Fram arrived at the Bay of Wales on January 9, having been delayed in the Roaring Forties by easterly winds. On January 16, the Japanese expedition arrived at the Bay of Wales and landed on the barrier near our winter quarters. We left the Bay of Wales on January 30. We had a long voyage on account of contrary wind. We are all in the best of health. Roald Amundsen, Hobart, March 8, 1912. Introduction to Amundsen's book, The South Pole. An Account of the Norwegian and Arctic Expedition in the Fram, 1910-1912. When the explorer comes home victorious, everyone goes out to cheer him. We are all proud of his achievement, proud on behalf of the nation and of humanity. We think it is a new feather in our cap, and one we have come by cheaply. How many of those who join in the cheering were there when the expedition was fitting out? when it was short of bare necessities, when support and assistance were most urgently wanted. Was there then any race to be first? 
At such a time, the leader has usually found himself almost alone. Too often he has had to confess that his greatest difficulties were those he had to overcome at home before he could set sail. So it was with Columbus, and so it has been with many since his time. So it was, too, with Roald Amundsen. Not only the first time, when he sailed in the Joa with the double object of discovering the magnetic North Pole and of making the Northwest Passage, but this time again, when in 1910 he left the fjord on his great expedition in the Fram, to drift right across the North Polar Sea. What anxieties that man has gone through, which might have been spared him if there had been more appreciation on the part of those who had it in their power to make things easier. And Amundsen had then shown what stuff he was made of. Both the great objects of the Joa's expedition were achieved. He has always reached the goal he has aimed at this man who sailed his little yacht over the whole Arctic Ocean, round the north of America, on the course that had been sought in vain for four hundred years. If he staked his life and abilities, would it not have been natural if we had been proud of having such a man to support? But was it so? For a long time he struggled to complete his equipment. Money was still lacking, and little interest was shown in him and his work outside the few who have always helped so far as was in their power. He himself gave everything he possessed in the world. But this time, at last, he nevertheless had to put to sea loaded with anxieties and debts, and as before, he sailed out quietly on a summer night. Autumn was drawing on. One day there came a letter from him. In order to raise the money he could not get at home for his North Polar expedition, he was going to the South Pole first. People stood still, did not know what to say. This was an unheard of thing, to make for the North Pole by way of the South Pole. To make such an immense and entirely new addition to his plans without asking leave. Some thought it grand, more thought it doubtful. But there were many who cried out that it was inadmissible disloyal. Nay, there were some who wanted to have him stopped. But nothing of this reached him. He had steered his course as he himself had set it, without looking back. Then by degrees it was forgotten, and everyone went on with his own affairs. The mists were upon us day after day, week after week. The mists that are kind to little men and swallow up all that is great and towers above them. Suddenly, a bright spring day cuts through the bank of fog. There is a new message. People stop again and look up. High above them shines a deed, a man. A wave of joy runs through the souls of men. Their eyes are bright as the flags that wave about them. Why? On account of the great geographical discoveries, the important scientific results? Oh no, that will come later for the few specialists. This is something all can understand, a victory of human mind and human strength over the dominion and powers of nature, a deed that lifts us above the gray monotony of daily life, a view over shining plains with lofty mountains against the cold blue sky, and lands covered by ice sheets of inconceivable extent, a vision of long-vanished glacial times, the triumph of the living over the stiffened realm of death. There is a ring of steeled, purposeful human will through icy frosts, snowstorms, and death. 
For their victory is not due to the great inventions of the present day and the many new appliances of every kind. The means used are of immense antiquity, the same as were known to the nomad thousands of years ago when he pushed forward across the snow-covered plains of Siberia and northern Europe. But everything, great and small, was thoroughly thought out, and the plan was splendidly executed. It is the man that matters, here as everywhere. Like everything great, it all looks so plain and simple. Of course, that is just as it had to be, we think. Apart from the discoveries and experiences of early explorers, which of course were a necessary condition of success, both the plan and its execution are the ripe fruit of Norwegian life and experience in ancient and modern times. The Norwegians' daily winter life in snow and frost, our peasants' constant use of ski and ski sledge in forest and mountain, our sailors' yearly whaling and sealing life in the polar sea, our explorers' journeys in the Arctic regions. It was all this, with a dog as a draught animal borrowed from the primitive races that formed the foundation of the plan and rendered its execution possible, when the man appeared. Therefore, when the man is there, it carries him through all difficulties as if they did not exist. Every one of them has been foreseen and encountered in advance. Let no one come and prate about luck and chance. Amundsen's luck is that of the strong man who looks ahead. How like him and the whole expedition is his telegram home, as simple and straightforward as if it concerned a holiday tour in the mountains. It speaks of what is achieved, not of their hardships. Every word a manly one. That is the mark of the right man, quiet and strong. It is still too early to measure the extent of the new discoveries, but the cablegram has already dispersed the mists so far that the outlines are beginning to shape themselves. That fairy land of ice, so different from all other lands, is gradually rising out of the clouds. In this wonderful world of ice, Amundsen has found his own way. From first to last, he and his companions have traversed entirely unknown regions on their ski. And there are not many expeditions in history that have brought under the foot of man so long a range of country hitherto unseen by human eye. People thought, it a matter of course, that he would make for Beardmore Glacier, which Shackleton had discovered, and by that route come out onto the high snow plateau near the pole, since there he would be sure of getting forward. We, who knew Amundsen, thought it would be more like him to avoid a place for the very reason that it had been trodden by others. Happily, we were right. Not at any point does his route touch that of the Englishman, except by the pole itself. This is a great gain to research. When in a year's time we have Captain Scott back safe and sound with all his discoveries and observations on the other route, Amundsen's results will greatly increase in value, since the conditions will then be illuminated from two sides. The simultaneous advance towards the pole from two separate points was precisely the most fortunate thing that could happen for science. The region investigated becomes so much greater, the discoveries so many more, and the importance of the observations is more than doubled, often multiplied many times. Take, for instance, the meteorological conditions. A single series of observations from one spot no doubt has its value. 
But if we get a simultaneous series from another spot in the same region, the value of both becomes very much greater because we then have an opportunity of understanding the movements of the atmosphere. And so with other investigations, Scott's expedition will certainly bring back rich and important results in many departments, but the value of his observations will also be enhanced when placed side by side with Amundsen's. An important addition to Amundsen's expedition to the pole is the sledge journey of Lieutenant Prestrud and his two companions eastward to the unknown King Edward VII land, which Scott discovered in 1902. It looks rather as if this land was connected with the masses of land and immense mountain chains that Amundsen found near the pole. We see new problems looming up. But it was not only these journeys over ice sheets and mountain ranges that were carried out in masterly fashion. Our gratitude is also due to Captain Nielsen and his men. They brought the Fram backwards and forwards twice each way through those ice-filled southern waters that many experts even held to be so dangerous that the Fram would not be able to come through them. And on both trips, this was done with the speed and punctuality of a ship on her regular route. The Fram's builder, the excellent Colin Archer, has reason to be proud of the way in which his child has performed her latest task, this vessel that has been farthest north and farthest south on our globe. But Captain Nielsen and the crew of the Fram have done more than this. They have carried out a work of research which in scientific value may be compared with what their comrades have accomplished in the unknown world of ice, although most people will not be able to recognize this. While Amundsen and his companions were passing the winter in the south, Captain Nielsen in the Fram investigated the ocean between South America and Africa. At no fewer than 60 stations, they took a number of temperatures, samples of water, and specimens of the plankton in this little-known region to a depth of 2,000 fathoms and more. They thus made the first two sections that have ever been taken of the South Atlantic and added new regions of unknown ocean depths to human knowledge. The Fram's sections are the longest and most complete that are known in any part of the ocean. Would it be unreasonable if those who have endured and achieved so much had now come home to rest? But Amundsen points onward. So much for that, now for the real object. Next year, his course will be through Bering Strait into the ice and frost and darkness of the north to drift right across the North Polar Sea, five years at least. It seems almost superhuman, but he is the man for that, too. Fram is his ship, forward is his motto, and he will come through. He will carry out his main expedition, the one that is now before him, as surely and steadily as that he has just come from. But while we are waiting, let us rejoice over what has already been achieved. Let us follow the narrow sledge tracks that the little black dots of dogs and men have drawn across the endless white surface down there in the south. Like a railroad of exploration into the heart of the unknown, the wind in its everlasting flight sweeps over these tracks in the desert of snow. Soon, all will be blotted out. But the rails of science are laid, our knowledge is richer than before, and the light of the achievement shines for all time. Fridtjof Nansen, 
Lysacker, May 3, 1912. End of section 00. Recording by Beecher Graham.